You know, one thing that I am also really learning is that it is easy and and a default as a leader to push your mentees or the people that seek advice from you in the same direction that they went. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy for me to coach someone to apply for a fellowship their senior year of West Point, specifically target their application to the Rhodes Scholarship, and then pursue a master's in public policy at Oxford. That's easy. Mm -hmm. And I do that often, Mm -hmm. right? But what I think is especially difficult to flex and something that I'm still growing and doing myself is taking the time to listen first to what that mentee or what that friend is interested in and what truly serves them. And then taking the time to learn about that route and then transforming your mentorship guidance and your feedback based off of truly what someone in that field might guide them to. And, and maybe, maybe that looks like you referring them to a friend who's more of an expert in that arena and can provide that feedback. But I've, I've given advice. I've received advice. That's totally a projection of what I've done before or what they've done before and had nothing to do with the interests of the person that was coming to me. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to the Intentional Leader Podcast. No matter how you are coming to this show, I hope you leave inspired and with some practical tools to help you lead yourself more effectively and to help you have a higher impact as a leader. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's go make it count. Well, hello everyone and welcome to episode 98 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. It's so great to be back with you after taking a few months off at the end of 2022 to catch my breath reflect and get ready for this new year. I hope that your 2023 is off to a great start. Today, I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with Simone Askew. She's an incredible leader and thinker. She was the first black female to be the first captain at West Point, the United States Military Academy, which we'll get into what that means. And I had the opportunity to meet Simone last summer at the Moment 2 conference that was put on by the wonderful nonprofit Military Mentors. They actually have another one coming up at the uh, end of this month in January. So check that out. Go to militarymentors.org to learn more about that. But she sat on a panel discussing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and her answers were fresh and they were thoughtful. And I just knew that I had to see if she'd agree to come on the podcast. And thankfully she did. And I think you're really going to enjoy how she thinks about leadership. I first though, before we jump in, want to apologize to all of you for not communicating better over the last several months. I really appreciate you in this audience. I appreciate your time. And I I should have done a better job of telling you that I was going to take some time off. Although I didn't really know that I was going to do that. I just decided after uh, several kind of factors in my life to take a few months and just create some space to think, to reflect, to think about how intentional leader would proceed into the new year. And it actually was really wonderful to do that. So I appreciate your patience. Uh, There's been a lot of change in my life over the last six months. I've got a new baby, uh, changed positions at my work. My wife took on a new role at her work. We moved from North Carolina to Virginia. So there's just been a lot of changes. And I wanted to take some time just to think about my rhythms and to think about kind of my vision for the way forward. And with that, I've decided to move from an every two week release schedule here at Attentional Leader to a once a month release schedule. So I want to let you know that I did once a week for the first probably six months of the podcast, and then I moved to once every two weeks. 
which I did for the last two years or so, two plus years. And now I'm moving to once a month. And it's just a matter of considering my season of life, considering my rhythms and being intentional about that. I want to try to make sure I do that in my own life. And I encourage you as a leader to try to do that as well, to think about your season of life, think about your rhythms and think about how to create space for the things that are most important. And the difficult part about that is it does require us to acknowledge our own limitations. We have to get sleep. We have to have time to read and think and, and work out and do the things that fill us up. We have to have time with our families. And so I, I as someone who's very performance-based, I have a hard time acknowledging my limitations sometimes that I need to get sleep. And uh, so anyway, that has led me to just to make some minor adjustments in how I do this podcast. But I really love this work. I love thinking about leadership, thinking about how we lead ourselves, think about how we impact others and make the world a better place. And I'm excited to be here with you and I'm excited for 2023. This interview with Simone Askew is a great way to kick off the new year. As I said, she was the first black female first captain at West Point. And that was a big step in racial and gender equality in the United States military. She also was named by Glamour Magazine as one of the top 10 college women of the year. She's a Rhodes Scholar. She earned her Master's of Science with Merit in Refugee and Forced Migration Studies from the Refugee Studies Center in 2019. And she also received her Master's from the School of Government at the University of Oxford. In this episode, we dive into her experience as a first captain, some of the struggles that she experienced early in her time at West Point, including some really difficult things that happened to her that she shared on this podcast. We talk about the power of mentors and how she's really benefited from mentors in her life, how she manages pressure, what it meant to others for her to be the first black female first captain. And she also gives advice to the older leaders in the audience. Uh, I guess I should probably include myself in that, but uh, she's from a different generation and she gives us some advice from a younger perspective on what she wishes that older leaders maybe did a little differently. I thought that was really good. So thanks again to all of you who listen. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for, to all of you who have rated, reviewed this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And you can also do that on Spotify. That really, really helps us reach new leaders. It helps us gain credibility and expand the audience and this community. So I really appreciate that. Also, thank you to all of you who continue to support Intentional Leader on Patreon. That helps me cover the cost of doing this show. I really appreciate that. If you want to learn more about that, just go to calwalters.me and you'll be able to see the Patreon tab there. It's pretty easy to sign up. Without any further ado, let's jump into my conversation with the inspiring and energetic Simone Askew. All right. Simone, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I'm really excited to finally get to connect with you and share all of your wisdom with the audience here. Yeah, thanks, sir. Thanks so much for having me and to all of the audience members out there. Thank you so much for even taking the time to listen. It's such a pleasure to chat with you, sir, about leadership and massage through some of the questions we probably don't have answers to, but can at least converse about. I mean, that is life, right? We're just often the questions just lead to more questions, but it's a it's a lifelong journey. And it's so cool to talk to you because I think you bring a unique perspective in many ways, but also you're just a young leader. I mean, you are, you're someone who is really kind of just getting started in the military, but you've done a lot. You've accomplished a lot. You and I met at a really cool event put on by military mentors where you were on a panel talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion and mentoring at the same time. Um, and I was just fascinated by your answers. I thought you brought a fresh perspective to that topic. 
And so I immediately was like, oh, I got to get you on this show. I got to share. I got to. I got to tap into some of this wisdom. And you were so you were the you were the first black female first captain at West Point. What was your goal as the first captain at West Point, or what were your primary goals? Would you say? Oh God, you know my pillars are tenants of first captain command. If you could even and tell say. people what first captain um, is real quick too, because people may not know what that sure. is. Sure, sure. So what I try to do is make it fairly synonymous to what a student body president would be uh, in a civilian university or potentially student liaison between the student body and the administration. Those largely were the roles and responsibilities I filled with alongside the brigade staff and many of the regimental commanders is being the representatives that not only advocated for the needs and uh, the requests of the cadets, but also attempted to translate the expectations of our officers who were really coaching, teaching, and mentoring us to back to the student body. Uh, whether I did that successfully or not, <laughs> who knows? But in theory, that's that's what our job was as key leaders amongst the Corps of Cadets. And my goals were really informed by a specific question I remember being asked in the interviews leading up to being selected for first captain. And at the time, the brigade tactical officer, Colonel Reed, asked me why I was even interested in doing the role in serving in that position. And I specifically remember having practiced this question and really feeling deeply about my response, which was, that I had really struggled as a cadet. My mm. freshman year was particularly difficult for a myriad of reasons. Um, you know, there were some personal things, some academic things, some athletic things. I, I really did feel like there were battles on all fronts mm. of my cadet life. Mm. And I had senior leaders who had been in similar situations, but were in their first either senior year equivalent, so successful, and so had effectively traversed those difficult barriers and made it to the point of what they deemed as success for themselves. And my reliance on them throughout my first or my freshman year, my yearling year, my second year, were the only <laughs> guiding lights that I followed out of the trenches. And it really, for me, it really was the trenches. And I, and I felt so eager to relate to young cadets, regardless of where they were in their journey, um, to help them traverse the same, whether it was in implementing new systems that really spoke to those who were struggling, or if it was in creating recognition for those who were succeeding in a, a myriad of different arenas, I felt like being a leader at that scale who had struggled would actually make me excited and quite qualified to meet people where they were at. Mm -hmm. And that was my goal as first captain. Um, you know, I think the reality of the position was that you spend less than a year and anyone who's been in the army knows that you learn how to do your job right when you leave it. Yes. And so, so whether I effectively, <laughs> like, I, I'm not, I'm not certain if I effectively did that for the United States military Academy or if that legacy stuck in any way, but that was my goal. That was my goal every day when I woke up was to try to be the leader who could really empathize with the struggles that people were going through. Cause I had been through them myself. 
I love that because I think it's easy to look at your resume, even as a. How long have you been in the army at this point? Almost five years, okay. but four and a half. Okay, so you've <laughs> you've been in the army for four and a half years, but you were the first captain at West Point, which, by the way, is a really big deal. I I remember being at West Point and just I mean, like it's just it's such a big role because you are, I mean, you're the top cadet, which means you're representing, you know four plus thousand cadets and West Point just has, there's so many public facing uh, moments at, at West Point where the first captain is the person representing the Corps of Cadets. You have general officers that come, you're interacting with general officers, you're interacting with foreign dignitaries. I mean, it's just, it's a big, it's a very public uh, facing role. And, and so that's a big deal, but you're also a Rhodes Scholar uh, and you've done a lot of other amazing things. Which, but, but I love that you started this conversation talking about some of your struggles. And so I think it's really easy to look at you and be like, oh man, she just has been crushing it in every moment. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges early on, would you say, in your, in your time at West Point? I remember really struggling as a cadet. I think West Point and, and many other kind of similar institutions do a good job of bringing you from a place of, of success and, and relative confidence to, oh man, I don't know if I can make it. So what were some of those big specific struggles for you? Would you, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. If you're comfortable talking about them and then we don't have to, you know, no, go into of all of them, but I'm just like, what are some of the top that, that jump out at you? Yeah. And they were all interconnected. Cause you know, if once it rains, it starts to pour. Yeah. And when things are so intertwined in your cadet life, it's hard to compartmentalize things that are happening in one segment and divorce them from other segments. And for those who haven't been to West Point or are still learning about the culture of West Point, I think it's important context to know that you're graded on literally everything you do. You're graded on the relationships you build with people. You're graded on the cleanliness in which you keep your living quarters. You're graded on how effectively you set up meals, how well you work out, how well you do school. So like, there is no hour of the day in which you aren't being assessed. So for me, the summer leading into my freshman year, I had an experience of sexual assault, which led oh, wow. to a an, a formal investigation of the person who had ended up actually being a perpetrator of a myriad of different sexual assault cases oh, wow. against women in the Corps of Cadets. And so that first semester, I probably spent three to five hours a week actually with a JAG officer, which was really my first introduction to JAG officers and why I will for, forever be so grateful for the JAG Corps. Mm. But with a JAG officer recounting every instance or every detail, many of which I could remember, I couldn't remember. And while I knew that there was fruit in talking about what had happened for the primary purpose of aiming to prevent that instance from happening to someone else, it was emotionally draining. Yeah. And you already have very little energy to navigate your first semester at West Point. And so I used a lot of that energy to talk about, address, redress that situation. And as a result, 
I didn't have a ton of energy or mental focus to assign to homework. And you have a huge academic burden on top of trying to build strong relationships with people in your company. And I also think that uh, that first semester, I didn't have the time to be a part of an organized sports team for the first time in my life. And so you add that to what can already be an isolating experience. And many times I felt alone. Many times I felt really out of control of my environment. And because of those mentors that I spoke about who really supported me and provided that community throughout that first semester, I ended up joining the crew team second semester because I knew I needed organized PT amongst a group of people that were pursuing a common goal. The investigation ended that December. And so I had reassessed my academic standing and set new tangible goals for myself. I also made a rule that I wouldn't check my class ranking because that was Mm -hmm. something that was a, a, a constant reminder of my quantitative success around me that I just didn't feel like was especially fruitful. So to your question, those were many of the things I was struggling through. And any one of those in isolation is not, is not easy. But once one domino falls and sort of the trickle effect occurs, it can seem like everything is sort of crumbling around you. But I really love telling the story because It speaks to what you alluded to, sir, which is the capacity for us to build resilience by way of just knowing when to ask for help. Mm. It was not that by my my strength alone, I was able to get through that season, but really because I knew this was really hard for me and I can't do it by myself. I need to rely on my battle buddies, on my mentors to, to help me get through. Wow, Simone. Well, I'm, first of all, I'm so sorry that you experienced that in terms of the the sexual assault. And I'm inspired by the courage that it takes to come forward, to tell someone what happened, and then, of course, to go through the process of an investigation. And uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure what happened to the perpetrator after that, but... Um, I'm sorry that that was your experience and I'm I'm sorry that you went through that. Um, at the same time, um, it, it is really, it's always amazing to me to see people who have the courage to, to get kind of on the other side of that. Um, not that you ever, I guess, maybe fully get on the other side of that, but you, you know, you obviously have, uh, gone on to, to be willing to talk about it and, uh, I'm sure to help a lot of other people, uh, navigate, similar circumstances or other difficult circumstances. And, um, so, so thanks for, for being willing to, to share that. What, what do you think kind of looking back? Cause I, I, I'm just kind of curious to kind of get into your brain a little bit because that's a really high pressure role and you've done other really impressive things, but like, what do you, if you had to kind of step away and look at yourself and say, okay, what has helped me be the most successful? Like, what are some of the things that I do as Simone ask you that maybe no one sees that just really helps me lead myself well, helps me produce certain results that are uniquely pretty impressive? 
Um, what would you say? What are some of those things that are like, you know what, this really helps me perform. This helps me perform under pressure. This helps me stay centered. Just, I'm just curious kind of to get behind the scenes of, of Simone for a minute here for, for the benefit of all of us. Oh gosh. Yeah. I, I saw this question and I was thinking to myself, wow, I probably should have the super fancy <laughs> leadership development answer. I wake up at 5am and I do no. CrossFit at 530 Give us and the then I eat my protein yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, frankly, what I would say, especially in my most turbulent seasons, there are two things and yeah, two things that I recommend not only for myself, but people around me that have been so helpful. And the first is having a strong community of senior leaders or mentors that you trust, that you really trust to have your best intention and who, what I often say, you can make the sausage with, which is think through underdeveloped ideas, have an aspiration, but not know how you're going to get there be uncertain about the answer to a question. And those leaders can talk to you about it and not judge you in any way. I would say, maybe surprisingly or unsurprisingly, about every six months, I, I always tell my mentors, I have two in, uh, in particular that I'm thinking of, Dr. Fry and Lieutenant Colonel Johan, who are both in the history department at West Point. I will call them and I'll say, Sir or gentleman, I'm having an existential crisis. I need you to help me sort through my life. And they know, okay, they know about like the six month period each yeah. year that that's what they're going to have to sort through and do the mental model of what does 10 years look like? What does 20 years look like? They know yeah. the right questions to ask. And most importantly, they're so patient. Mm. They're so patient with me while I'm freaking out about what's next, <laughs> even though it may appear as though everything's sorted. Um, and I'd say that. The second one is I love therapy and mm. I find therapy to be especially valuable in self-reflection, but also reflexivity about the natural responses I may have in tough situations. Mm. And so one thing that I've most recently been able to pick up on and work through is I have a tendency to catastrophize, which I don't, I'm not sure how familiar the audience is with that word, but you engage with the experience and you think the worst case scenario is going to occur. Yeah. And, and most of the time it's a preparatory response that allows you to feel like you're prepared for even the worst day that may be ahead of you. So it's not inherently bad, but it can cause, or, or a symptom of that can be hypervigilance or over preparation for something that, might go extremely well. Yeah. Um, and most most of the time usually does go extremely well. So being in that therapeutic space and, and having the opportunity to reflect on the things about me that could use investment or improvement, in my opinion, not only makes me more successful in the day-to-day, -day, but makes me a better person to be around. Um, because those reflections and, and that personal work therefore enhances the quality of my relationships with others. So, you know, by nature, if I'm thinking about the ways in which I'm needing improvement, it's going to make better my relationship with my platoon sergeant mm -hmm. or, you know, my connection with my first sergeant or my commander. And so you do everyone a service when you are better energy to be around. So I would say those, those two things are definitely recommendations I'd have to anyone keen to implement 
daily systems that that would pursue self-improvement. Ooh, you're speaking to me. I, I feel like I've been doing a lot of catastrophizing lately. So I appreciate that insight, even in this moment. Super helpful. What did it mean to you to be the first black female first captain? I, I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, it seems like that would mean a lot. But at the same time, I don't know. I'm just curious. What what did that mean? How did you think about that that first Yeah, I don't think that, frankly, sir, the the significance or the weight of it stuck me until I left. When I was going through it, I remember specifically thinking every day that when I would go into the superintendent's office or when I would go into the commandant's office, that it was important that I had a keen awareness of what every single cadet would want me to say in that moment. So if we were advocating for what privileges we got after army beat Navy, it was important that I knew exactly what everyone wanted and that I pushed for that and used effective negotiating skills to actually realize that those privileges came to fruition. As far as the significance of, of the racial and gender barrier to a degree there, there was a spotlight on that role and whoever fills that role, regardless of the racial or gender identity. Mm -hmm. yeah. And because I occupied that minority, those minorities and that double minority, there was a lot of association with race and gender in the military aligned with my performance and my presentation in that role. And as I was doing it, as I noted, I had a community of people that really mm -hmm. carried me through. So I often saw myself really just as a vessel to communicate what so many people had prepared and taught me about at the academy. I do think since leaving, that has definitely been a pressure that has increased because it's mm. not just being the first in that role, but I'm sure any first captain will tell you that title follows you wherever you go. Mm. And so as a platoon leader, you're not just a platoon leader, you're a platoon leader that formerly served as the first captain at West Point. And yeah. so, you know, every memo has to be perfect. Every presentation needs to be eloquently presented to the battalion commander. And if he has feedback that you failed, you know, these like uh, these things that we so tell ourselves pressure. in our yeah, minds. Right. That, I can see how you, that could lead to catastrophizing. Like, oh my gosh, the yeah. my grammar was off on this memo and people are going to, you know, attribute that to West Point or something. You know, it's it's just... Yeah. A lot of pressure there. Or think, you know, how how were you selected yeah. if this? Or right. how did how did they think you were qualified if that? But what I do think is so important is to recognize that every leader needs space to learn their job, regardless of what they did before. It, I do think there has to be that allowable buffer period for people to adjust. And so it's been really helpful for me to conceptualize how I would like to be as a leader, welcoming any new person to the team or any young person learning about their interests um, and capabilities is just to extend grace, mm -hmm. regardless of what their CV looks like, because we're humans. And that's what makes us awesome. But their titles don't shouldn't mean anything good or particularly bad about what they can bring to the team in that present moment. Did you get us, have you gotten us, like, what is, what did you being the first black female first captain mean to others? Or I guess the question is more of, 
have you had a lot of people come to you and say, wow, like that, that meant a lot to me. You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to get into, as a white guy, I mean, part of it is just trying to understand. I feel like I am, I am learning, right? I am trying to grow and understand and, and kind of get in sometimes to a world that I don't fully understand because that's just not been my experience. Um, so many of the leaders that I see are, you know, very similar to me in terms of race and gender. Um, I had a, I recall having a friend just uh, commenting on, you know, he's a black um, uh, officer in the army and just commenting that like, when I see the leaders of this organization, I don't see a lot of people that look like me. Um, and I had just, and, you know, frankly, I just never really thought about that. And so I, I'm just curious what that experience has been like for you in terms of feedback from others and what that has meant to them. That's a great question, sir. I really like that one. And it brings me to a reflection of the first time I gave a brief to the new cadets when I was the Beast 2 commander. So for all of those unfamiliar in the audience, there is a summer training that you do before your senior year where you are, in essence, assessed, an internship, if you will, assessed for what academic year position you will then hold. So while I served as the first captain the academic year of my senior year, the summer before that, so in between my junior and my senior year, I served as a leader in one of our training events. And it was a training event for the incoming freshmen. And in that detail, I give an initial brief to all of the freshmen. And it's the intent is really to be a motivating, inspirational presentation of the senior leadership of the detail um, and really just give them clarity about what is the purpose of the training, why they should give it their all, and what they have to look forward to in the future of their academic year. And I was preparing for the brief thinking, you know, what are all of the pillars and mission statements and vision statements that I should memorize and say to the cadets? And I reflected on my own time in that training and how tired I was, how stressed I was. They say that you get like stress sweat. So you smell mm. especially terrible. <laughs> um, and frankly, I wasn't as a, as a new cadet going through that training myself, I was not able to memorize the mission or really remember what the vision was. Right. But I did remember the authentic energy hmm. that my beast commander had, hmm. Austin Welch. I still remember him to this day. <laughs> he ended up becoming first captain as well. Oh wow! But the authentic energy that he brought to that presentation. And I couldn't tell you anything that he said, mm -hmm. but I could tell you that when he said our motto as one, that I really felt bought into it mm. and I would have followed him anywhere. Yeah. And so in that reflection, being able to transplant myself back to what was new cadet Simone like, <laughs> it helped me form a more authentic initial presentation to them. And I had a lot of energy because I was obviously so excited to be there. I always say doing the beast leadership was the most fun I had as a cadet. But, but I think that story is relevant insofar as it shows that I found the most valuable trait that I brought as a leader or the thing that people really reflected on when they spoke to me about whatever impact, small or large, I had in their own lives really came back to the point of authentic authenticity, hmm. that they were so happy to be able to talk to me and feel as though 
I was being my true self. And so therefore there was space for them to be their true selves, regardless of what that looked like. They could be black women, white women, black men, Asian American men, disabled people, like whatever your identity was, Mm -hmm. you could, you could be yourself around me because I felt so comfortable being myself. And Mm -hmm. I do think in, in an organization that definitely encourages homogeneity that interacting with leaders regardless of their background that make space for others to learn about themselves and to fully manifest that individual identity I think is a privilege and something that I always aspire to perform and do throughout my time as a cadet but also as an officer. I I really enjoyed your insights on diversity at the military mentors event. And I know that's a huge topic and we could spend an hour talking about that. Um, but I'm just curious, what, what do you think, what, how do you think, I guess, what are some of the misconceptions that you think when we have that, cause that, that, I feel like that conversation is happening more. I'm seeing it happen more in the army. Uh, I'm seeing it happen more, even in small, you know, office settings where we're talking about, Hey, we're, we're diversity is important. Equity is important. Inclusion is important. What do you think, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about that? Or to take this either way you want to go, <clears throat> or just simply, how do you think about it? How do you, how do you, what do you think we should be kind of moving towards as we have these conver- conversations? So when whenever I'm asked about this topic, I always think about the, the concept, the policies, the discussions as lessons, as if you were taking a course. You know, some of us in the military, outside of the military, have experienced these things firsthand, but there are other people who are really learning by way of conversation, of exposure, familiarization. And with any of those endeavors, I think fostering or being in an environment that people feel safe to learn is the most important thing for myself. There's so much I still need to learn in that arena. Right. And so much that everyone else who doesn't have that firsthand experience work that they have to do to try to build a capacity to empathize and move towards action. I think foundational to that for all, for all people is fostering environments where people feel comfortable to say that they don't know Mm. and to feel encouraged to want to know. And it's not always easy, right? Because you think about traditional dynamics in a classroom. If you have a teacher that's motivated, who's eager to teach and a student that is eager to learn, the relationship goes really well, but that's not always true. Mm. Like in a class of 30 people, you're not always going to have a teacher who never burns out and is always eager to teach Mm -hmm. the lesson. And you're not always going to have 30 people in the classroom who are doing the homework the night before coming to class prepared and eager to contribute. And so there, there are classroom dynamics always, and there are days in which students should step up as teachers as well. And fluidity in, in that metaphor completely, but I found the relationships in which I was able to observe the most growth in myself and the people around me were spaces where 
we establish that primary safety for everyone to feel comfortable, to be vulnerable and mm. to grow in that vulnerability. And, and to me, that's one of the most important things about this discourse. That resonates with me a lot because sometimes, and this is just me being completely honest, because I feel like that's what we're encouraging each other to do right now. Uh, I sometimes just feel like, it, like I guess having a safe place to talk about it is so important and feeling like, like you said, that I can admit that like, I don't know, I don't understand. I, cause for me often, like I just, in these conversations as a white male, I just feel like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, of course, you know? So it's like, but I want to understand and I want to learn. Um, and then I'm sure like there's other kind of shades of that of like, okay, well, you know, I, and there's probably people that are like disinterested, like, okay, fine, push the, you know, or there's people that are um, maybe would be interested if they understood more. And then there's people that are all about having these conversations. I don't know. So I guess it's just having the, the ability to, to know that like you can kind of bring where you're at and, and we'll go from there and, and we'll, we'll kind of grow together. Um, I don't know. That makes a lot of sense to me. Definitely. And this is, this is by no means a comparison, but the, the feeling that I always think back to that gives me the capacity to empathize with others who are eager to learn um, just with a, an unrelenting fervor is the time I spent living abroad in Mexico. Mm. You know, they had assessed in the Spanish department, I had a sufficient proficiency in the language to live there for four months it was a great time mexico city is my favorite mm -hmm. place in the entire world <laughs> but i will tell you every single day going to mm -hmm. class sitting in lectures attempting to build my fluency in the in the, in the language was not easy mm -hmm. it was draining and a lot of times my instructors would publicly point out the fact that I, my Spanish was not good enough and that they were so surprised that I had even been sent to <laughs> the top university in Mexico to study if I wasn't at full fluency. And that makes it, a, that makes it even more difficult for me to feel comfortable to ask for help or to say that I don't understand a word. Um, and so there's a part of that, there's a part of that story that reveals that maybe I should have been more fluent. Maybe my proficiency was not at the level it needed to be to be in those classes. That could be true. And it also could be simultaneously true that I might have learned more effectively if I spent time around people who were comfortable to acknowledge that I was terrible at Spanish and had a lot of work to do. And I did have those people, right? Mm. Like Those people surrounded me throughout my experience, which is why I was able to grow in that language. And so I think about that just as a time in which learning was really difficult and the constant exposure to it took a lot of energy. And, and I think about, okay, how can I foster not only for myself during that period, but for others in other intellectual journeys they're going through, similar spaces that they feel less drained, but encouraged, encouraged to do the work that they are alleging and committing to be dedicated to. I I spent, uh, when I was at West Point, I spent similarly four or five months in Chile um, and similar experience of just living with a family, trying to learn 
feeling totally inadequate in my in my Spanish. But you're right. Over time, man, it started to it started to grow. But there were it was it took a lot of effort, and um, I think that's a great analogy for kind of that kind of the diversity, uh, equity, inclusion conversations that we're trying to have and creating that that space, um, but knowing that it's hard work too. Um, and then you got to surround yourself with people that you can that you can learn from. And uh, so, Simone, we only got like a minute left. Um, in like the last thirty seconds, just really quickly, you're a young leader. What do you wish kind of more senior leaders knew about this generation of leaders? Oh gosh, that's such a good question, and one that. I'm definitely going to say take with a grain of salt and ask and survey the field because I think everyone has a different reflection. Um, but what I would say is I really am inspired by senior leaders, peers, subordinates that are willing to have intestinal fortitude to be courageous, even if it comes at a cost. Um, I think that is something that I really respect in the leaders that are around me that have led me and, and have really taught me how to serve in similar capacities. I think <clears throat> of a specific leader who um, we recently met each other but has had such a large impact in my life is my brigade commander, Colonel Cullinan. And he speaks very frequently about the things he's very committed to. And one of his pillars and requirements as a brigade commander is the no asshole rule. Hmm. And in this pillar, you know, it's a common theme that's shared around um, organizational leadership circles and in all the latest podcasts. But he requires that People have high expectations and work hard towards a common goal, but are not assholes. Mm. And that we can do all of those things and still pursue kindness and respect towards mm. the people on our team. And he says that and makes that boundary, even if people adamantly disagree, even if people don't respect him as much for saying that or holding people accountable to that. And to me, that's so inspirational to see someone with wisdom to set those boundaries and assert them, even if it costs social or professional capital in doing so. And so that's my that's my personal statement. But of course, what I would encourage is that every leader who has subordinates, they have a keen awareness of what the people on their team are keen to see in leaders and then adjust you know, use the different tools in their tool shed to meet those teammates where they're at. Is there, la sorry, last, last very quick question. Is there something that frustrate, like, is there any, like, what would you say frustrates you the most about like kind of more like older leaders? Um, does that make sense? Like, I, I'm just curious, like, is there, is there a commonality that you would say your generation of leaders are like, man, they just frustrate me in the way they do X or they, oh you know, they don't understand. So I don't know. Like, is there, I'm just curious because I feel like I'm out of touch and a lot of people are probably my age Aww. or older and there's kind of a little bit out of touch. And I know we have like 30 seconds left, but just, just very quickly, is there anything that comes to mind? I mean, my first thought that came to mind is I wish I had as much wisdom as them. Oh. Uh, that would be great if they could just transplant that wisdom. But that's a good me. thing. That's a good so thing. Happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one thing that I am also really learning is that it is easy and, and a default as a leader to push your mentees or the people that seek advice 
from you in the same direction that they went. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy for me to coach someone to apply for a fellowship their senior year of West Point, specifically target their application to the Rhodes Scholarship, and then pursue a master's in public policy at Oxford. That's easy. Mm -hmm. And I do that often, Mm -hmm. right? But what I think is especially difficult to flex and something that I'm still growing and doing myself is taking the time to listen first to what that mentee or what that friend is interested in and what truly serves them. And then taking the time to learn about that route and then transforming your mentorship guidance and your feedback based off of truly what someone in that field might guide them to. And, and maybe, maybe that looks like you referring them to a friend who's more of an expert in that arena and can provide that feedback. But I've, I've given advice. I've received advice. That's totally a projection of what I've done before or what they've done before and had nothing to do with the interests of the person that was coming to me. And so I would recommend that for, for senior leaders, you know, mid-journey leaders, young leaders who have people who come to them for advice is really listen to what the person is asking. And I would say more often than not, when someone's seeking advice from you, especially professionally, the ideas they propose are really things that they're committed to in their mind. They're just looking for affirmation from someone. They're just looking for permission to take that jump in that in that direction. And so the job then is not really to re-steer them in a different direction and most certainly not in the direction that you did because that was best for you. Um, Instead, it's just to encourage them and to help them find the tools necessary to traverse that new route, even if it's one that you haven't been on yourself. Whoa, that's so good. We'll end with that. Simone, thank you so much for Using using your platform really to be an authentic, genuine, empathetic leader. I'm excited to follow your journey. Keep keep doing great things. Oh God! Thank you. Really no, appreciate the thank time. Thank you so much, sir. It's been such a pleasure, and you are a wonderful leader and human being to to be around to speak with. And I'm so filled just by interacting with you, sir. So thank you for your time and your commitment to making this happen. And to everyone who listened, thank you. <laughs> well, hey, friends, thank you so much for listening till the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Simone Askew. I hope it inspired you in some way to grow in your leadership. Simone has such a wealth of wisdom at such a young age. I was especially struck by her humility and vulnerability. It's refreshing to see an authentic person with a genuine heart to serve and represent with excellence the people that she leads. You can also sense how her experiences, those difficult trials she experienced early at West Point shaped her leadership. She assigned special meaning to those experiences, which allowed her to lead with empathy and not forget what other cadets might be going through. And finally, I just loved her advice there at the end for anyone that finds themselves being a mentor, get to know the passions, the dreams, the goals of the people that you lead, the people that you mentor. Don't project your goals and experience onto them. Instead, get to know them, push them to meet their God-given purpose. I hope you have a great start to this new year. I encourage you to take time to reflect on this past year. Even if you haven't taken the time yet, it's not too late. Take the time. I think it will really help you set more meaningful goals and cast a better vision for this new season. I'm excited to be on this journey together. I'm excited to grow together. Remember that life is short. Let's go make it count.